All right, so tonight we're going to be talking about an interesting dilemma that, um, that occurs whenever something spiritual or, or, or perfect comes to earth. And you think about all the things, all the miracles Jesus did, all the healings, and how much of that remained perfect. In other words, Jesus healed somebody, and then they immediately continued in the course of their life, and they got sick and decayed and died normal deaths. Uh, Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus multiplied loaves and fish. And it was eaten and digested and became of this earth. And so whenever something from the perfect realm enters the imperfect realm, it becomes subject to the laws of the imperfect. As a matter of fact, the only, the only thing that entered the perfect realm that did not become subject to decay was Jesus himself. And the scripture says that. You will not let your Holy One see decay. But everything else that enters into this imperfect realm becomes subject to the curse of sin and death. And so when God is, is giving us his word and is, and is delivering it unto man, you have a problem. How do you deliver the word of God without it becoming subject to deterioration? How does it become not subject to, to wrong translations or scribes make, you know, writing something down wrong? And so that's the interesting dilemma that we're going to talk about because that is something that people will oftentimes talk to you about and argue with you about when you try to bring up the, the we believe in the, the, inspired, the inspired perfected word of God. And they'll say something like, but yeah, but it's been translated after translated after translated. How, may, how, how, how could it not have deteriorated in terms of representing the initial truth? And it's a valid question because everything else we see does. And so some of us, we imagine the preservation of God's word in ways that are not entirely biblical. Uh, we imagine, for example, God delivered his word by... Uh, just kind of dictating it to the apostles, right? So God dictated, here's Luke, this is what... And so we kind of picture Luke just in prayer, right? Listening to the Holy Spirit and writing down. But we know that that's not how it happened. Luke says he talked to people. That he made a careful investigation himself. John says, you know what? Because the other three Gospels had existed for some years, that he wanted to write his own account to really reinforce and strengthen and edify faith in the believers. So we know that at least on some level, and I've, I've pointed out before that if you look at the differences between, for example, Mark, who was written to Romans, there's a lot of active words, and Luke, who was the beloved physician, look at the same story. And we see the story, for example, with the woman of the issue of blood. And in Mark, it says that she had spent all her living on physicians, but had not grown better, but only worse. When Luke says it, he says, many physicians had tried to help her, but none were able, right? And so I envision God delivering his word much as an artist delivers a masterpiece, that he selected Luke and he selected Mark and he selected Matthew, much as an artist would select a paintbrush to get different nuances and tones. Now, when you look at those two stories, they don't contradict each other. They simply bring two different viewpoints that, that we would not normally get. If, in other words, if they all said exactly the same thing, we wouldn't get that little nuanced viewpoint. And so what we want to talk to, about tonight is textual criticism. T 
Textual criticism. And the reason we're going to talk about that, and, and like I said, if you're here for a previous, uh, if you're here for a previous study, criticism doesn't mean criticizing it. Think of it in terms of research. So textual criticism is doing the research. Yeah, this isn't this isn't going. So um, you'll you'll just have to watch me when I point to you. I guess if you, unless you can get it going. Um, textual criticism is the study of copies of a written document whose original is unknown or no longer in existence to determine the exact words of the original. Textual criticism is a study of the copies of a written document whose original is unknown or no longer in existence in order to determine the exact wording of the original. Now, we don't have any of the original autographs. Those are the original manuscripts. We call them the original autographs of Scripture. We don't have any of the originals that Mark wrote with his hand or Matthew wrote with his hand or Paul wrote with his hand. So textual criticism is the way at which we arrive at what the original autographs of the New Testament actually said. Can you just not even bring it up on the side screen? Okay, you, you can do what you need to do then. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just try to make sure. I'll just try to make sure you can follow along. Uh, there are a lot of liberal scholars who claim that we will never be able to claim certain knowledge of exactly what the original text of any New Testament writing was. And what they say is, look, we're too far gone. There's been too many scribes that have had their hands in the process. And so there's no way to know what the original wording said. Now, textual criticism is necessary for two reasons. Number one, the original autographs no longer exist. The original autographs no longer exist. Secondly, no two copies of any ancient New Testament manuscript completely agree. Now, if that's all the data you had, you'd probably say, well, how can we know then what the Bible says? If no two manuscripts of all the thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts, if no two... Let me give you, let me give you a, 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 an example here. The New Testament is constructed of approximately 138,000 words. There are, in all the manuscripts, three to 400,000 variants. What that means is that that's about two variants for every word in the New Testament. And like I said, if that's all you knew, you'd say, well, there's no way we can know what was in the Bible. I'm going to show you why that's not true. Number one, some, growth, some, some of that growth of the New Testament, the New Testament has grown about 2% since the oldest manuscripts. Some of that growth was due to copious error. For example, placing Erasmus's margin notes into the Bible. Erasmus was the chief editor of the King James Version. Many modern translations are based on the King James Version. And so, unfortunately, some of his margin notes ended up in the text. Some was due to the fact that King James translators did not use any manuscripts that were older than the 10th century. So all the manuscripts they used were from the 10th century, the 900s and later. This is not insignificant, but it is an incredibly small amount compared to other ancient texts, especially texts that were continually in use. Put this into perspective. The Book of Mormon has changed more in 150 years than the New Testament has changed in 1900 years. The, that, that's, putting, that's putting it in perspective. So you begin to see what the preservation of God means. It doesn't mean he didn't allow anybody to write anything down that was wrong. 
Clearly, if you've ever read the Jehovah Witnesses New World Translation, there's stuff in there that's just flat out wrong. And, and of all their translation committee, only one of them had even a rudimentary knowledge of the Greek. These were not scholars putting this translation together. These were people with an agenda who wanted the scriptures to line up. Now, if God was preserving his word by not allowing him, you would think that he would have caused a plague to descend and just smited the people who were... But he didn't do that. We have modern paraphrases that I, you know, where Jesus says something like, it's a whole new ball game. Well, obviously Jesus never said it's a whole new ball game. So God is not striking down or smiting people that mess around or monkey around with his word. So that's not what the preservation of scripture means. What it means is that God is preserving what he has communicated so that every generation can know the same truth that the first century church knew. Every generation can know the same truth that the followers of Jesus in the first century heard him speak. Now, I want to I wanna break these differences down into four groups because when we talk about such a large number of variants, it, it immediately conjures up, oh boy, well, how do, how do scholars weed through them? Most of them were spelling and nonsensical errors. So if you're writing that down, that, that, that open spot is for errors. There's spelling and nonsensical errors. Um, there are plenty of places where there's, there's something like the, the movable new, which is the N, where John's name is spelled I-O-N-E-S or I-O-N-N-E-S. And it's very simple, similar in English to how you might say a something or an something depending on what you were speaking of, right? An item or a banana, right? And so there's no, there's no difference in anybody who knows anything about Greek doesn't pay attention to that and think that's an error, but they simply see it as this was, a, this was the way a scribe interpreted Just like sometimes it drives me crazy when I'll see people writing your wrong, right? And they meant to say you are, and they write Y-O-U-R, but we all know what they mean, right? Even if you're a grammar Nazi, you know what they mean. I was raised by educators. So when I see that, I'm like, ah, you know. Um, so, so it's like those impossible to, to, to write out English sentences. Like there are three twos in the English language. You can say it. We all know what it means. But you can't write it. There's no way to write that sentence down. But anybody who tried to write it down, any, any one of us reading it, we would know exactly what they mean. So the vast majority, the vast majority of these variants are, sense, are, are spelling and nonsensical errors, which are very, very easy to figure out what they are. Secondly, they involve minor differences that involve synonyms and do not affect the translation. Minor differences that involve synonyms and do not affect the translation. Third, Differences that affect the meaning of the text, but are not viable. Let me give you an example here. If you take three words, and an, uh, an author, and I can't remember, I think his name is Komaszewski, put it this way. Take three words. God loves Paul. Now, how many ways can you arrange them? You could say God loves Paul. Paul loves God. Loves God, Paul. Loves Paul, God. God, Paul loves. And Paul, lo Paul God loves. Okay. Now, all of those are different, and in English, they would mean different things. However, in the Greek, as long as the word God is in the nominative case, and Paul is in the accusative case, 
Every single way I just said it means the same thing. Greek was a very precise and nuanced language. So you could say, God loves Paul, Paul loves God, loves God, Paul, or write it out anyway, loves Paul, God, God, Paul loves, or Paul, God loves, and it would mean exactly the same thing as long as the words... So a scribe just moving a word wouldn't change like it would in English. It wouldn't change the meaning of that sentence. And lastly, differences that affect the meaning of the text and which are viable. And so that's, that's probably the one we want to talk most about today because those are... It's, it's by the way, it's the, it's the smallest of all of them. But the vast majority, like I said, of the variances are simply spelling errors. Spelling errors. The next largest category is that of synonyms or minor differences that do not affect translation. All right, so let me give you an example here. In Mark 6:31 through 8:26, there's 89 verses. Jesus in those 89 verses is never identified by name in the oldest manuscripts. It, it just because it starts talking about Jesus and then keeps repeating he. He did this. So they know. Now what happened is later on when you have something called lectionaries. And what lectionaries were, were kind of like, think of a daily devotional. All right. So you'd have your devotional and it would say, read this scripture verse. And so they would write the scripture verse. But the problem is, if you're using something there and you haven't identified, what do you do? You put the name Jesus in there. And I do this myself sometimes. I'll, I'll usually put it in parentheses. But if I'm starting with a text that said, he, let me, let me give you an example of, of where we all do it. I can do all things through... The, the Greek doesn't say Christ. The Greek doesn't say Christ. The Greek, say, the Greek says, I can do all things through him... Who strengthens me? Right? Now, does that change the meaning of the text at all? No. It simply brings into focus who the he is. So almost all of us, when we quote Philippians 13, 4.13, say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because that's exactly what the text means, even if it's not exactly what was written. So when these lectionaries were being written, oftentimes they would put in the name of Jesus or put in the name of the subject whoever it was, it was speaking of. And sometimes, because let's say you were somebody growing up in that time, and you had heard over and over and over and over again, I've done all thing, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And now one day you're a scribe and you're copying Philippians 4.13. What do you do? You probably write, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we see a lot of later manuscripts that say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, while the earlier manuscripts say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, the next meaning, uh, largest care category is that of meaningful variants that are not viable. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, instead of the gospel of God, we read the gospel of Christ. Now this is meaningful, but there is very little chance that one late manuscript could contain the original wording when the vast majority of older manuscripts agree of the other reading. I'll give you an example here. Let's say I picked out four people in this room and I said, I'm going to give you a copy of a passage I wrote down, right? Some, some sermon notes that I wrote down. And I want you to copy them by hand and I want you to give them out to four people. And I want you to tell them to give them out to four people, okay? And so let's say that five or ten generations go by and there's now hundreds, a couple hundred copies out there of this. Now, if you could determine Let's say you had 
uh, you know, 100 years from now, let's say you had 20 copies of the latest, gen- last generations written, and you only had three of the earliest. But all three of the earliest agree. Would you put more weight on the three or on the 20? You put it on the three. Because if you knew that they were the oldest and they all agreed precisely, you would say, this is clearly what the author actually said. Especially if the 20 started branching out and started having errors in spelling or whatever, you would say the oldest ones are the best. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, modern scholars will go back to the most ancient manuscripts because one later that says this doesn't erase all the oldest manuscripts. In the earliest manuscripts of Matthew 9, the question is asked, why, Je- why Jesus do you eat with sinners? While in Luke 5 and Mark 2 it says, eat and drink with sinners. Now again, does that change the meaning? No, we would assume if somebody was eating with somebody that they were also having something to drink, even if it's just water. Um, what happened though is that scribes were prone to try to harmonize the Gospels. So they would co- maybe they'd copied Mark... And maybe they'd copied Luke. And now they come to Matthew and they come to that same or similar passage. Why does your master, right as your rabbi, eat? And they would copy and drink. Again, what can we do? We can go back to the oldest manuscripts. We can go back to the oldest manuscripts and see what they say. Um, in Romans 5, and this is, these are examples of, of meaningful and viable variants. In Romans 5, does Paul say, we have peace... Or let us have peace. Now the difference in the Greek is one letter. It's one letter. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, Paul describes himself and his colleagues as either gentle or little children. Now most scholars think that he he said, again, the difference in the Greek is one letter. It's one letter. So a scribe copying something down, one letter changes it from gentle to little children. Now why why do most scholars translate it as gentle because later Paul says we were like a nursing mother to you so it wouldn't make sense in one hand to say we were like little children and then a few sentences later say we were like a nursing mother so the difference like I say is just one letter and so what scholars have to do is figure out the context in in first John 1 4 the verse says either out that our joy may be complete or that your joy may be complete And the best example of this is the last 12 verses of Mark. And we talked about this a little while ago, I think, in the first or second study. The vast majority of manuscripts include these verses. But the earliest and best manuscripts don't. And so you have a problem because Mark had an atrocious command of Greek. And he wrote his gospel. And at the end of his gospel, you have 12 verses where he suddenly has an incredible command of Greek... And it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. Now, this is, this is interesting because we, at, we have to ask ourselves, well, why would somebody later on add 12 verses? Mark, if you, if, you, if you have a Bible that's footnoted and you look at the end of the Gospel of Mark, you'll see the footnote says the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have these last 12 verses. But look where it ends. It ends with the women bewildered and confused coming out of the, of the, of the, uh, the tomb. 
Well, that's a weird place to end a story, isn't it? Right? I mean, you have this whole story of, of Jesus' teaching, of, of, of his ministry, and of his death, and then it ends just with an empty tomb, and it doesn't really explain what happened, and they're confused, and they leave the tomb. It seems weird if somebody's using that to tell a story, but boy, it's great if you're using that as a jumping-off point. <laughs> right? If, and Mark was the earliest gospel written. So imagine, right, you would give this to the church and a new church is being formed and they'd read that. Well then, and by the way, Mark's gospel is probably Peter's gospel that Mark wrote down because Mark was, Mark was the, the traveling companion of, of Peter for a good number of years. So most scholars think that when we're reading the gospel of Mark, it's actually the gospel of Peter, but Mark wrote it down. Now, when you, you have a church that reads that, and then you have Pastor Peter stand up, tells the end of the story, that's going to be very impactful. However, as the years went by, and as the other Gospels were written, they felt it necessary. We need to, we need to add some more of the story. We need to talk about how Jesus appeared to us, and how he came, and, and you know, John talks about... Um, that, that scene where, and I, you know, sometimes I wonder, because John and, and Peter are running to the tomb, right? And, you, and here's, here's John writing it down, and, he, and Peter's like, don't say it, don't say it. And that disciple that Jesus loved outran the other disciple, oh, you had to say it, right? So, so you have these personal details that go up to the tomb, and then also the, the restoration of Peter in John chapter 21. You don't see that in Mark. You don't see, like, like Luke talks about, go into Jerusalem and wait until you receive power on high. Why? Because Luke was writing two books at the same time, basically. He wrote them kind of like, you know, Lord of the Rings, how they'd film in Pirates of the Caribbean, and they'd film the two movies at the same time. Um, very similar. Luke was writing Luke and Acts as companion works. So he wrote his gospel, what Jesus did, but then also wrote, well, this is what the early church did. And that's how we have the book of Acts. So when you're talking about all of these variants, the important thing to remember is that none of these, not one of these, affect any foundational belief. Not a single variant. And I, and I want you to wrap your mind around that. I, I would love to, to talk with somebody and run the odds. Because if you have three to 400,000 variants where you have spelling differences. In one, for example, a scribe wrote the word and instead of like the, the word of the and, uh, because it, it, instead of the word of the Lord, because the words are very similar, Kai and Kurios. And you can tell where he was writing. He was at the end of his shift, right? Because the, right after that, it's very bright and fresh and clean, and that's kind of... And so here's a guy at the end of his script, and he writes, this, and this is the word of the and, Right? We know what, that, what he meant to write. And so this is the amazing thing to me. And this is what really inspires me and encourages me. And we're going to talk about other ancient writings. But of all these variants, none of them, none of them affect a single doctrinal belief of the church. And isn't that amazing? We can be confident that here we sit 2,000 years after the writers wrote. All these other writers... Scholars will still argue, what did they mean? Did they mean something else? There, there are books from, from antiquity that we know have been really messed with. For example, if I ask one generation, how many 
uh, reindeer did Santa Claus have? Depending on your age, some of you are going to say eight. Some of you are going to say nine. Rudolph, right? I mean, come on, you got to include Rudolph, right? That's how myths grow. That's how myths grow. Myths don't stay stable. Ancient Egyptian myths change drastically over the centuries. Ancient Roman myths, the stories of their gods, change significantly over the centuries. And here we are 2,000 years later with not a single doctrinal difference in what we have to what the ancient church had. That is amazing. And if that doesn't point to the God preserving his word, he doesn't do that for Herodotus. He didn't do that for Suetonius, right? He didn't do that for, the, for Homer. But somehow in his word, of all these variants, of all these disagreements in the text, we don't see anywhere where the essential doctrines of the church have been changed at all through the centuries. So let me give you some myths about manuscripts. I'll give you some myths about manuscripts. Um, number one, as time passes, we are getting farther away from the original autographs. Now, in order for this to be true, three things must be also true. First, that we have lost the data about the manuscripts that the KJV, the King James Version, was produced with. All right, so if we were getting further from the original manuscripts, we would have had to have lost the data. Meaning, if I'm going, let's, let's say I, I was showing Daniel a book. I was talking about the book in his steps. Um, and Daniel said he bought a version. It was, it's free on Kindle. But uh, he said, yeah, I bought it on Kindle. I'm like, it's free, right? But, uh, but because that, that's the reason it's the second most published book behind the Bible. It was never copywritten. So anybody could, anybody could publish it. And, and many people did because it was an incredibly popular book. Like I said, it was where the phrase, what would Jesus do, start. And I think it was published originally in 1896. Now, I have in my office a very old copy of that book, probably uh, maybe 100 years old, that was, you know, removed, withdrawn from a library somewhere. And actually in the front it says withdrawn, so it was belonged to a library somewhere. And they put it out and I, and I picked it up somewhere. I don't even know where. Now, let's say that starts to fall apart. I have some very old books in my office that are falling apart, and my you know, grandfather's Bible and whatnot. So let's say I wanted to copy that. Now, once I copied it, do you think I would destroy the manuscript that I used to copy it with? No. Why am I copying it? So that I have a useful version I can look at every day. But I don't throw away what I had. I have, if anything, I put it in a box and preserve it. And so we still have the manuscripts that the King James Version used to go and check future manuscripts against. Secondly, this would have to be true, that no earlier manuscripts have been discovered in the past 400 years. That's not true. One of the great things about archaeology is we keep finding earlier manuscripts. As a matter of fact, I saw, and I mentioned this last week, that I saw a news story, I think it was on CNN or NBC or one of the news, uh, major news uh, outlets, that's talking about the discovery of a missing or a lost chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it wasn't really lost, but what had happened is it was erased over so because a scribe copied it on the same piece of vellum or whatever. 
And so a scribe wanted to kind of refresh it, erased it, and copied over it. Now the great thing about what we can do with lasers is now we can look and see exactly what, and where's the difference between that older one that might have been four or five hundred years older and the newer one that was copied by a scribe if there was any difference at all. Uh, the third thing that would have to be true is that all modern translations are based on earlier translations. And that's not true. Some are. Some are. I believe the NASB is, is a translation of the King James. But many of the modern ones, I think we, we've got some that are like the English Standard Version over here. They use the oldest manuscripts that we have. So they, they just bypassed the King James absolutely, went back to the oldest Greek manuscripts and produced a new version of the Bible based on the oldest manuscripts that we have. Some of them, like I said, have been discovered in the re most recent centuries. Um, all of these assumptions are demonstrably false. Erasmus used manuscripts that were no older, like I said, than the 10th century, while the NIV used manuscripts that date back to the 2nd century. So we're not, if anything, we're getting more precise. We're not getting farther and farther away from the oldest manuscripts. We're getting closer and closer because we're able now, through archaeological discoveries, to go back to even older manuscripts to find out exactly what they said, to proof check them against what is being written today. Um, here's, here's, let me give you another myth, myth number two. Um, we cannot know if the surviving texts paint a reliable picture of the original faith. And this is a very common one. This is one that people argue about. You know, the early church was very, very different. The early church... I found it interesting because somebody was... And this was, I don't know, more than a decade ago. But they were looking at the modern church today. And they were looking at all the different variations of the modern church. Different cultures... Uh, what they call used to call high and low church. By the way, we'd be low church. But um, it, it, high church was very proper, very formal, right? And so all the, and, and they said, you know what? Paul would probably feel most at home in a church like this today because it would have been very similar to the church he ministered in. Now, some of you have seen that meme going around that says, if Paul were alive today, we'd be getting a letter. <laughs> right, Paul, and I said, and it would begin with, I don't even know where to start with you guys. <laughs> but in terms of form and in terms of worship, in terms of how we absorb the word of God and expose ourselves to it, it's very similar to the early church. It was just common people getting together. And they would be taught and they'd instru be instructed. They might share the Lord's Supper. They would probably share a time of worship. There would be a time of giving. And it's amazing. Here we are 20 centuries later. And, and what it tells me is this. With all the technological advances, and sometimes we think we're so advanced with our nuclear bombs and the striped toothpaste and all that kind of, you know. With all the advances, there is still something in the human soul that needs for us to get together and connect. And they recently did a study of, of different generations. And they found out that for the last several hundred years anyway, that there was a stability in the amount of time people spent together. That whether you're talking about the 1800s, 1900s, that there was this stability of percentage of time that human beings would come together and spend time together. This is the first generation where that dropped off like that. Because of our technology. 
right? If you are, now my daughter is 18, still in high school. If you were to compare our social life who are older, almost every day you're getting together with your friends, right? Almost every day. You're, it's not true of people in this generation. And what it tells me is that we are really set up to reach the younger generation because there is a spiritual need that is not being met through technology anymore. And it, is be, and it is leading to the highest level of depression ever recorded in human history. And, and, and this is, you know, I, I used to say of millennials, and it's sad but true. Millennials were the first generation where you were more likely than not to have a sexually transmitted disease. First generation in all of human history where you are more likely than not to have some sort of sexually transmitted disease. Now we have a generation coming behind them, generation uh, Gen Z or Gen, and then even Gen Alpha, where you have the highest levels of depression and suicide ever recorded on planet Earth. We have never had a generation like this going back to all the ancient historians where we have this level of depression. And what it's telling us is that our technological advancements are not doing what they're, what they're promising to do. And so what I do is when I talk, let me say I talk, I'm talking to a musician. One of the things I will ask them is, are we more or less advanced in the art of music than we were a few hundred years ago? In terms of complexity, in ter- not even close. If you listen to most modern music and then you compare, it is literally childlike. I'm not trying to be insulting. There's some songs I like. But in terms of the rhythms and the construction of modern music, it is very simplistic and childlike. Whereas several hundred years ago, you would have to apprentice. as a, You would study this like any other craft. That you, to, to be a, a good musician... Uh, I, I was just talking with somebody today about when I was when I was coming up in the music business, we didn't have auto tool uh, or auto tune and Pro Tools and all that kind of stuff. We actually had to practice. Talking about practice, right? And we'd practice over and over and over. And it was to where we did never we never wanted to give our fans a bad show. We felt bad if we didn't. And so when I came to the Lord, I brought that with me. The Bible says that the musicians are to play skillfully with excellence. The Bible says whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. So when I came in, I was appalled. I mean, I, would, I came into a church and here's people showing up 20 minutes before church. Just let's just run through it real quick. And I'm like, no, that's not how you give your best to the Lord. You, you, you want, you want to, and I would tell my worship team, I said, and, and I know that this offended some people, but I said, guys, there's only two ways to get better. I'm not trying to be threatening. I'm not trying to be accusatory. I'm just stating a fact. There's only two ways for the team to get better. You can get better or other people can t- take your place. That's a statement of fact. There's no other way for that to be accomplished, for, for the team to get better and more skillful. And so when I see a young preacher, I, I spoke once about a, a man who uh, I saw preach, and every sentence he ended with, amen. Every sentence. Every. Good to see you today, amen. Why don't we turn to Luke chapter 9, amen. 
I, I hope we have. And so we had some teenagers there, and guess what they started to do? Six, seven, eight, 249 times. 249 times. His content was great. Nobody remembered his content. Because 249 times, he said. And so if, I, if he was a young minister coming up and I saw that on video, what would I tell him? Listen to yourself. Stop doing that. Get better. And so you have to understand that when, if you're an ancient scribe, you have a passion for this. This is important to you. You're going to lock yourself in a room and you're going to copy scripture. And yes, there were occasionally, because we're human beings. And like I said, as soon as God delivers anything into the human realm, it becomes subject to the problems that we face on this earth. But understand, these were people with passion. These weren't people that just, oh, just write it down, right? Like some kid getting an assignment. These were people that were highly passionate about what they do. Now, when we talk about whether or not it paints a, a reliable picture of the original faith, we have to remember they desperately wanted it to. They wanted for us to, make, to, to be sure that what we were reading was what they were writing. So, first of all, this kind of criticism isn't applied to other ancient writings. The New Testament is by far the best attested work of Greek or Latin literature in the ancient world. I want to put this in perspective here. There are only three surviving manuscripts of Tacitus and none earlier than the 9th century. There are 20 manuscripts of Thucydides dating back to the first and 200 manuscripts from Suetonius. Now, Suetonius wrote in the first century. I think he was born 69 AD, so he was born, he would have written probably in the late first, early second century. None of his manuscripts that we have are earlier than the ninth century, the 800s. So let's say he's writing in the year 90. The earliest manuscript we have is 800 years later. And yet none of their authenticity is, is seriously considered. Scholars read this, and they have maybe nine copies or maybe they have 20 copies and they agree and they say, this is what it says. We have thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts, lectionaries, sermon notes, letters that the early church fathers wrote where they quoted scripture, backing up and verifying what we have in our text. So if, if guess what? An archaeologist, they dig up a letter from maybe, say, the third century. And from that, maybe it's sitting on a, on a, on a shelf somewhere. And, and, it's, and it quotes, let's say, 1 Corinthians 5. Guess what they find? That the quote matches what 1 Corinthians 5 says today. That's what they find over and over and over again. So when somebody says, well, we can't know if the surviving text paint a reliable picture, then we can't know anything. We can't know anything about the Odyssey and the Iliad and, and Suetonius and Thucydides. We can't know anything because they have far less texts to, 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 that, that describe what they're saying compared to what we are. Third myth. Um, and, and by the way, here's just a comparison of some um, extant historical documents. Um, 27 manuscripts surviving, three from Tacitus, a couple of hundred from Suetonius, 20 from Thucydides and 75 from Herodotus. The Greek New Testament from 100 to 150, which is beginning in the lifetime of some of those who actually walk with Jesus, right? 5,700 manuscripts. So you begin to get the picture when somebody is trying to say the Bible is not reliable, they just don't want the Bible to be reliable. 
They have no academic scholarship that, that would back up that claim. There's nothing out there to suggest that. And yet that's what, the claim, that that's what is claimed over and over and over. Here's myth number three. The early church destroyed manuscripts that disagreed with what they wanted to teach. It would simply be impossible. Now one of the, one of the, um, the, the things that happened early... We talked a little bit about Constantine last week. Constantine was the first Christian Roman emperor. And he, he lived in the early 4th century, so the 300s AD. And he became a Christian. He was in battle. And he had a vision. And he saw in the heavens the shape of a cross. And he heard the words, this is his testimony, by this conquer. So he put a cross on the Roman shields. And he went into battle and he won. He became the emperor and he made Christianity the official religion of Rome. So prior to that, though, and you would think, well, you know, it probably gradually happened, right? It went from a lot of persecution, like let's say under Nero in the 60s, because Nero killed Peter and Paul in the 60s AD. You know, and so by 325 or 300, you know, the early 300s, 325 was at the Council of Nicaea. Um, so by the early 300s, it, it had just petered out. Here's the problem with that. In 303 to 311, there was an emperor named Diocletian. And he may have been the most anti-Christian emperor of all. He persecuted the church so successfully that in 331, Constantine had to order the production of 50 new Bibles. Okay. The early church, right before Constantine, simply did not have the power to destroy manuscripts. They weren't a political force. So they had no ability to go into Egypt, to go into Africa, to go into what is now Europe and destroy manuscripts that disagreed with what they wanted to teach. They weren't in power. They were so persecuted, they were so... The last thing they would have thought about is, hey, you know, we've got some churches over here that are teaching this, and we've got some churches over here that are teaching that, so we need to organize like a, a, a bunch of companies of soldiers to go in and take their manuscripts and replace them with what... They had no power to do that. Absolutely no power to do that. And so the early church didn't have the ability, and this is something we're going to talk about in future studies because I know we're coming up against the clock. The early church just didn't have the power to destroy what they considered heretical. And so if you're watching these programs, and I don't recommend them. I have a, I have a, a friend, I haven't talked to him in years, but he was in my church in Massachusetts. And he was, he was not a Christian, he was a deist. I think he believed in God, but, and, but he would come to church with his family every week. And, uh, and even when his family wasn't there, uh, if they were off on a retreat or something, he would still come to church. And, and, and his name was Mike, and, and Mike and I would have these conversations. And I remember asking him, do you ever, what do you, you know, when you watch these scientific programs, do you ever just want to pull your hair out at how wrong they are? And, and, and he said, you know, the problem is that sometimes they simplify them to try to get a broader audience to the point where they no longer mean what they mean, right? So these concepts are simplified to the point to try to make something just agreeable or understandable to the masses, where if the masses were able to understand that, we'd all be scientists, right? That's why, that's why we needed Mike. And I said, because sometimes I'll watch these shows like, you know, banned from the Bible. 
And their premises are so ridiculous, right? They say, well, this book was banned from the Bible. Well, maybe it was banned because it wasn't written for 600 years. You ever, you ever consider that? Or maybe it was banned because the early church, who, by the way, like I said, if you go back, previous generations were no dumber. They were better artists. They were better. Do you think modern poetry? Have, does anyone think modern art like rivals Da Vinci and Michelangelo? Is anybody like, no, not even close, right? I look at Picasso. He can't even put where a nose is right, you know? So, but, but, but you look at, you look at, at, at the past and the ancients, some of the greatest philosophy. I'll tell you, having studied modern philosophy, it's dark and depressing. There, there, there's like very little in terms of morality. Everything's either unknowable or it's meaningless. Where if you really want to study the great philosophers, in some cases you have to go back before Jesus. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. So these weren't dummies, right? So these were people who knew Jesus, many of them, or you had many eyewitnesses like we talked about last week, many eyewitnesses in the church. And then somebody writes a book that Jesus turned his, his classmates into a bunch of goats that skipped around him, turned them back and forth. Somebody complained, a parent complained to Joseph, so Jesus struck him down and killed him. If you read that, what do you... Are you on crack? Like, what do you, what do you think? This is clearly not the Jesus that we, Joe, come here. He hung out with Jesus. Tell him how crazy this is, right? So when you see this stuff banned from the Bible, just because a lot of smart people are taking it seriously, there's a lot of smart fools out there, right? So they're reading this ancient manuscript and they're saying, well, why didn't this get included? Because the early church wasn't stupid. And the early church was filled with people who knew Jesus. And when somebody tried to come along saying that Jesus did this, well, no, he didn't. Right? Or, or Jesus caused these people to wither and die. No, Jesus never did anything like that. So we have to remember that the early church, and we're going to talk about this, we're going to kind of segue into, into future studies, but the early church was filled with people that had studied the scriptures even men like Andrew and Peter, who were fishermen, knew the Torah. You would have been instructed as a child in Old Testament scriptures. When I hear people say that Jesus was simply just kind of this transliteration of, you know, the Horus God or, or Egyptian God, I'm like, first of all, go study them and see how different they, they are. But secondly, do you really think that in the era where it was perhaps the most guarded of all the eras in terms of preserving their culture. Remember, you're on, let's say the Chinese came in here and took over this part of the United States, like Red Dawn, right? What do you, you become more patriotic. You become more concerned that their language and their customs don't seep into yours. And so that was what was going on in the first century. So you're trying to tell me that in the first century under Roman occupation, Somebody came in with a reworking of an Egyptian myth in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, right? The most culturally Jewish area of all the Jewish areas. And got away with it. And thousands of people got on board with this and abandoned their Jewish culture. Absolutely foolish. Nonsensical. The reason that people flocked to Jesus in the thousands in the early church is because they were Jewish, because they knew the scriptures. And the early writers of scripture, men like Paul, men like Peter, 
would use the Jewish scriptures. If you read the passage, for example, in the book of Acts, you see this Ethiopian, and he's coming to Jerusalem to study Judaism, and here's Philip running by the chariot, and he hears him reading Isaiah, and he says, uh, you know, he invites Philip to come into the chariot, and he says, who's this speaking of, himself or somebody else? And right there it says, Philip beginning with the scriptures. Right? So when Jesus appears to the men on the road after the resurrection, beginning with the scriptures, like we talked about last week, he opened their minds. But he always pointed back to the Jewish scriptures. There was a continuity, and they began to understand. This is not a different religion. This is not a reworking of Egyptian myths or Roman myths or Greek myths. This is the Jewish Messiah that Isaiah and the Psalms all predicted would come. And that's why they flocked to Jesus. And so as we continue on in this study, we're going to see how we here in the 21st century are continuing in that line that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and the culture that began, the Jewish culture that began when God began to reveal his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, we're humbled. We're humbled. That you have chosen us. You, you looked on us individually and by name. You called us out of this world system to be a part of your story, God. To be a part of a story that didn't end when the book was, was finished. But Lord, that will only end when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom and rules and reigns and fulfills all the remaining prophecies. Lord, we are part of that story just as the prophets, just as the apostles were part of the story, Lord God Almighty, continuing it, carrying it, moving it forward to the next generation. Lord, you have called us by name. You have called us individually to be part of that story and to be communicators of that story to the generation behind us. I ask in the name of Jesus, Lord God Almighty, that you would just help us to reverently be mindful of that truth, Lord, that we are communicators of the truth and that as we go forward and as we develop in our walk with Jesus Christ, Lord, that we become better witnesses and better communicators of the story, Lord, so that the generation behind us has every advantage and every blessing that we received from the generation that handed it off to us. We ask this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen and amen.